The views and opinions expressed on coffee and compatibility are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Ashi. Welcome to another episode of Coffee and Compatibility. I am Eric Weimer and with me is Dr. Kelly Hitchman. How are you, Kelly? Hey, I'm doing good. It's good to be back with you guys. Back I know. From, uh, back from the transplant games in San Diego, California. That was a really fun time. Um, met some really cool uh, people while I was there. Do you oh, have medals to show? <gasps> do we I do. have... Of course you do. Okay, let's see. See here? So there's this thing at the transplant games that I did not know existed. And it's it's um, not only do you get medals. Okay, so I I did the 2K walk, but my medal is gold and it says 5K on it. Am I going to correct people? No, not at all. No. So I have that. And then there's this pin trading thing. So every um, the teams um, are states and regions, and every team has pins. And I also, our fantastic executive producer, Mandy Cruz, gave me pins, gave me Ashi pins to hand out. And I did this, and I got pins from every state. And so you can kind of hear them here. Oh, yeah. I got all, all the metal, all the metal here. Yeah. It's yeah, really, so it was really cool. It really comes across on the audio. Does it? Can you hear the jangle jangle? Yeah, it sounds expensive. <laughs> I am expensive, Eric. <laughs> truth, truth. Um, but I am not near as impressive as the people who actually uh, took the time and, uh, and actually competed in, in the events. And that was really impressive. There are recipients living donors, donor family members, and every type of event that you can imagine. And there are even, you know, events there for all um, physical abilities. Um, so there's Texas Hold'em Poker. Um, this is an event that uh, the transplant community, the donors, the recipients, the families look forward to um, at least every two years. In even years, it's in the United States. And in odd years, it's uh, somewhere else around the world. Um, well, it was a awesome. great experience, one that I will never forget. Got to um, hear some really heartwarming and heartbreaking also stories. There were even oh, a I few imagine. people there who had just been listed for transplantation. Yeah. Um, it was an unforgettable experience. There's yeah. no really good way to segue from that. So I'm just going to say that, believe it or not, the ASHI Program Planning Committee asked Dr. Hitchman and myself to come back as hosts. I don't know what we did, but we're going to be there. We're super excited about it. Super excited to co-host the meeting again, um, to, to be with you all again, live and in person. And with the co-hosting comes another exciting live episode of Coffee and Compatibility that our listeners are also excited um, because we have some new listener feedback. Um, we had several people listen to the last episode with Dr. Miller um, about transfusion support and sickle cell disease. And uh, Ellie Sanders says that she loved it. And right after she finished listening, her coworker came in and said that he was a match to a five-year-old boy. 
and was going to donate bone marrow to the five-year-old boy. So Ellie, this is wonderful. Thank you for that feedback and just absolute kudos to your coworker. Um, we love not just the feedback about the episode, but that it touched somebody and that it, you know, relates to a big goal in transplantation. So we are cheering your coworker on. Absolutely. And we have uh, Michael. Michael said, as a former longtime employee of the American Red Cross in Philadelphia, uh, he thought it was incredibly important, even better um, to get some feedback from someone at the American Red Cross, since that's where Dr. Miller is. And then we had Catherine, who said Dr. Miller was a wonderful speaker with great things to say, and she's really excited to hear another episode with her. And I can't say enough that Eric and I so enjoyed recording with Dr. Miller and just immediately wanted to have her on again and are uh, kind of in the planning stages of doing that. Um, but one of the best things that we got um, that I was super excited to hear um, was a personalized message that we got um, from Carly Amato Menker. And she said that she wanted to thank um, us for the amazing job on the podcast. And she considers Ashi to be a family and she's pursuing her PhD in immunology, uh, which is no small feat. Uh, and it's not directly related to transplants. Um, so she feels like it's easy to get disconnected um, from histocompatibility and immunogenetics sometimes, but the podcast helps her feel tuned in uh, and gives her motivation to push and finish her degree so that she can get back in an HLA lab. Um, so thank you so much, Carly. We can't wait to have you back in an HLA lab. Exactly. So thanks for that great feedback, folks. We'll be right back for a discussion on NephroCage with Dr. Matthew Chaprenau. Dear friends, uh, my name is Rob Liefsky, and I'm just very excited to be able to participate in the 48th annual uh, ASHI meeting in Las Vegas in October this year. I'll be speaking at two exciting workshops. Workshop two on uh, Tuesday, October the 25th uh, into validation and quality control of HLA. And I'll share you, with you the history of validation of our Halifax crossmatch procedure and give you some exciting updates on that. And the second workshop, workshop four, on October the 26th, which is a Wednesday. And there we'll be talking about best practice in HLA antibody testing, which is really at the heart of what HLA labs do around the world. And here I'll share with you exciting data on the protocol that we recently validated called the AXE protocol, which really improves HLA antibody uh, identification. So again, I'm so excited to participate and I hope to see you all there, uh, hopefully in person, but at the very least virtually. See you in Vegas. Today, we're talking with Dr. Matthew Shapranoff. Dr. Shapranoff is heading the working group in memory computing for digital health. He's a lecturer and scientific manager of digital health innovations at the Hasso Planter Institute. Dr. Shapranoff holds a PhD as well as master's and bachelor's degrees in software engineering. Please welcome Dr. Matthew Shapranoff. And we always ask our guests, can we call you Matthew? Sure, thank you very much for the warm words. Oh, outstanding. It's such an honor um, to have you. Um, we are really, really excited about this topic um, because it's so timely and it's been coming for a long time, but you are our first official episode addressing artificial intelligence in transplantation and nephrology specifically. Um, wow. So yeah, right? 
monumental. We, we should get some uh, pre-recorded like applause like in here at this at this point, I think. Definitely. Because um, <laughs> it, it, it's it's monumental. It's a huge topic. There are a lot of um, folks looking at artificial intelligence in medicine in general. It's kind of like the new forefront of potential personalized medicine. And so can you tell us a little bit about your project, which is called NephroCage. What does that stand for? What is it? Yeah, thanks. Thanks also for having me. And I'm here not as a single person, but as a huge team of collaborators from science, from um, companies all over the globe. And this is how we got to this topic as well, because my background is software engineering. And when we started, we thought, how can we help uh, medical professionals in their daily routine. And this is how we get to this project. We had a visit to uh, Canada. It was pre-corona in 2019, when we tried to explore um, what are the challenges for modern healthcare systems in particular. And one particular issue is obviously the costs and the quality. And if you think about costs and quality, you come to chronic diseases and um, chronic kidney disease, for instance, is one particular thing where people are affected for a long period. And whenever we can reduce any kind of unrequired treatments, it's good for the financial perspective, but also excellent for the affected patients. And this is how we came together. Of course, the name NephroCage is an abbreviation for nephrology and CAGE is Germany and Canada, the abbreviation. So we started with a um, huge group from Canada and Germany, but meanwhile, we also explore further to have um, collaborators all over the globe to get on board. That's that's uh, quite a group of collaborators you have there. One of the things I'm interested to, to hear about is, so why transplant? Why take what you're doing and apply artificial intelligence or machine learning in transplantation? Yeah, this, this is an um, excellent question. So the, the, the challenge in transplantation is um, every single person requires a specific treatment. And even if you have a lot of experience as a um, nephrologist, you will figure out that each of these patients after transplantation looks different and individually needs a specific treatment. And if you think about the cost, for instance, in, in, in Germany, um, dialysis costs about 30 to 40,000 euros per year per patient and um, especially chronic kidney disease patients are on dialysis for years um, you see it's a huge amount uh, and also huge of pressure for the healthcare system and when it comes to artificial intelligence um, a lot of data analytics task is today conducted by medical professions although this is not their um, not their job. So it's not their training, right? But they have to, to work with that. And uh, today it's got to be so easy to acquire huge amounts of data. Think about lab data, genetic data, um, data from lifestyle, uh, wearable sensors, and so on. And now the challenge is how to find the small piece of relevant data for the treatment of a patient. And to do this manually, this will be a tremendous job for a lot of people just to treat a single person. And um, these artificial intelligence algorithm or a more particular machine learning algorithm can support this because they are very good in routine tasks, time-consuming time tasks, right? And they can support that. You know, one of the things that I think is, is exciting to me about the application of AI in the field of transplantation is the ability for it to see 
patterns or attributes in the complex data that individuals like myself or Kelly just like simply can't, right? It's just beyond my comprehension level to do that. Can you maybe speak a little bit to how you, from your position, see that happening? Excellent example, um, Eric. So the, the, I believe the strength of artificial intelligence and use is what we are today referred to machine learning. Machine learning is a specific subset. This is not like we want to have a artificial doctor or an artificial um, avatar who can talk with us in, in a similar way like you talk to human beings. Machine learning is capable to detect patterns in huge amounts of data. And what they are doing here, um, typically what you can do is you can use historic data from other patients to showcase this and based on patterns in there, these algorithms can learn to identify correlations and they are helpful to identify existing trends or even new trends, depending on what you're doing. And here, here comes the huge potential. The computer is doing this 20% at the same quality while you after a long shift as a medical doctor might uh, suffer some other uh, issues in terms of quality and the concentration, right? And this is exactly this is exactly where I believe the, the, the power is. It's not AI versus human being, it's AI plus human beings because the routine task can be taken over by the algorithms at the same quality while intuition or experience, life experiences can brought in by medical doctors to even overwrite uh, any kind of probabilities which were predicted, right? And this, this needs to be also kept in mind. AI algorithms always give you just a kind of perspective, probability for certain event. They do not have a black and white decision-making um, thing like, like a lot of people try to communicate it. It's really probability and probability is not necessarily what we are used to live every day with. This is an outstanding point that you make. This AI is not trying to be a 100%, you know, artificial physician, um, you know, communicating directly to a patient that this is what is going on. It's a tool to help clinicians um, be, you know, more accurate, you know, when you're looking you know, in the middle of the night at an isolated case, and maybe it's something you haven't seen at your particular center with any regularity, maybe never before, programs like this, you're saying, will give us the opportunity to look at a collective data, um, not just in the present, but from the past, uh, amalgamations of huge amounts of cases, and potentially not just at your center, but at centers all over the country, or in your case, you're collaborating, you know, across countries, maybe all over the world. And you can put those patterns that you wouldn't have maybe ever even seen before to good use. And this is like, this is a huge thing, because just like you said, you know, in, in real life practice, you know, when you're on your fifth call at two o'clock in the morning and your one or two year old wants your attention just as much as that case, you could miss something really important, um, maybe much less likely to do so if a program is pointing it out um, for you in that moment and kind of speeding along that process, doing the background data collection for you. So I just, I think that point just can't be overemphasized that these programs aren't seeking to replace physicians. They're seeking to allow physicians to find the data that's really important. I, I have to ask, I, being that you're, you're 
background is in data and computational analytics and in that type of engineering. When you got involved with medical data, were you horrified? <laughs> a good question. So this this is uh, ideally this is a long time ago, but you're right. So uh, medical data is uh, a challenge for decades. And when I turned to that field, uh, I figured out what should I do with my profession? And I figured out that, that the clinicians could benefit the most because in, in terms of advanced analytics, they are lacking a little bit behind. And uh, if you are in, in your daily routine, you might prefer to use Microsoft Excel or something like this because it's all over available, but it's not the ideal tool to do big data analytics. And Kelly, as you pointed out, um, it's an ideal example that, that when it comes to the treatment of persons, um, the medical doctor is the right content because they oversee the whole, the whole family, the whole um, social system, the, the side effects, all that stuff, which might be not in the focus of the algorithm because it's 100% specialized to a certain um, prediction. And um, we, we have come to a certain point in, in time where the advantages in hardware are that high that we can make use of these algorithms, which are 30, 40 years old, right? And now the algorithms can be used even on huge data, which is today routinely acquired. 10 or 15 years ago, this data wouldn't be available at all. And as most of you might be familiar, um, AI is typically um, considered as the more data, the better. But this is not true. The right and the high quality data, the better the outcomes are, right? So it's not just quantity, it's about the right portion of data. So consider that you train one machine learning algorithm in a very specific, let's say, Northern American population. This might work excellent in North America, but it might work absolutely bad in Southern Africa, for instance. So, and this is exactly where it comes to the challenge. If you want to train these algorithms with medical data, you have also the data privacy concerns, different regulations depending on the country. So even if you try to bring data from different clinics or hospitals across one country together, it might be a, a sheer challenge because everyone considers this data as their own. It needs to be protected. It does not leave our physical location. And this is where we bring in a new technology called federated learning where we do not want to combine the data in a single silo. We just bring the algorithms to the data to learn there. No, and I think I think you brought up a, a really good point about you know something an algorithm trained in one location is not necessarily equal equitable performance in other locations, and that brings up a, a topic that I think comes up frequently when I've had conversations about AI is the concept of equity or how do you ensure, or how is NephroCage positioning itself to ensure the algorithms that you guys are developing equitably consider, you know, ethnicity, location, organs, you know, the, the variables that impact, you know, sort of human life? Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, at the moment, we are just starting to transfer the knowledge from science to um, healthcare use to, to medical use daily routine and to see if this works. So this is a kind of lighthouse project that we want to demonstrate. How is it possible to use the existing knowledge about AI algorithms to every specific medical use case to come up with this um, prediction? But you say uh, a very important thing here, the quality of these algorithms depends highly on the quality of the data. And if, uh, if you make use of AI algorithms later in clinics and you have absolutely no idea about the data which was used for training, this might give you absolutely no 
confidence in the results of these algorithms. So it's give and take. So you need to be transparent enough to say, hey, this is the amount of data. This is the type of data. This is maybe the um, process which was guaranteeing that we picked the right subset of the population to be part of the training data to, 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 to train these models. On the other hand, what you want to have is not a static system. What we are talking is a constantly learning system. That means in, in contrast to a traditional medical device, which is released to the market after getting um, the approval once, and maybe it is updated every two, three, four, five years, these learning algorithms should always get back the data, the latest actual treatment data to get improved constantly. And this might happen every week, every day. And this is also a challenge in terms of um, regulation. So if you follow the medical device regulation part, you will never get through the whole licensing stuff um, before you get the next release. But on the other side, you want to have benefits about new cases, rare cases, as soon as possible transported to clinicians and physicians. And the, 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 the way here is just to position as a, um, yeah, a system, assistive system, a clinical uh, medical decision support system, which is additional um, input giver for medical professionals. And they can build their opinions on that, but in the end, they have to combine all the existing tools and techniques, including the, the output of the AI algorithms in their decision-making process. Oh my gosh, you've thrown out so many outstanding topics. This discussion could go in a million directions and I could talk to you all day long, but our executive producer would kill me. So it sounds like another episode is probably going to be in order. But what I want to ask in the time that we have remaining is a little bit more specifics about your program. Um, in, in histocompatibility and immunogenetics, we have all these new analytic tools coming at us and they're not necessarily AI. We've got Hirsch, we've got Emma, we've got uh, Matchmaker, we have all these additional tools that give us different ways to look at our data and see, you know, patterns for sure. Um, and we always kind of wonder, gosh, you know, should I be using that one? Should I be using this one? Should I be using that one? But it, all of them are in their own little silos and they don't really talk to each other. Um, so how is Nephrocage unique? How does Nephrocage work? And I, I'm sure specifically, you know, our um, listeners in Canada and in Germany should be the most interested because they might actually be able to um, collaborate uh, and work with this software. So tell us more about the specifics on Nephrocage and is it available, um, you know, widely to Canadian and German partners, uh, all the specifics. Yeah, at the moment, we are working closely together with the um, initial partners, um, which are uh, hospitals um, with university background. And what we developed uh, over the past months is to come up with very specific clinical endpoints, which are relevant for um, physicians to understand what happens after uh, a transplantation. So what is a crucial endpoint, for instance, is the survival time after one and five years is the transplant failing in a short or long-term perspective? Is there any kind of organ rejection and so on? And for each of these clinical endpoints, we have to develop very specific um, prediction models to, to be used on the existing data after the transplantation. So what, what is going in is patient-specific data from before the transplantation and shortly after the transplantation. And then ideally the system gives you not a probability like 75.8%. Now it's more like 
classifying um, the risk in low, medium, and high for this patient. Because for the low me and medium patients, you might not have any concerns because you're fine. You just want to have a look at the high-risk patients just after transplantation. Then there is something you should be aware. And the earlier you can start interventions, the better the long-term outcome for these patients might look like, instead of waiting until a severe event comes up. And after these models um, are evaluated on the existing data set from, from our medical and clinical partners from both um, countries, uh, we are developing a prototype uh, as a part of, and, and you mentioned some of the collaborators earlier already, so they are also on board to, to bring in not only the existing patient data, but also more specific genetic data in um, finding out what's a reason for a rejection or what might be uh, an indicator for a high risk for um, a clinical endpoint like that. And all this information will be then assembled into a demonstrator, which is part of a web application, which can be then evaluated in the, um, in the hospital setting by clinicians to get feedback from them. Is this useful? What do we need? Uh, what is important for us at that moment in time? Because it's not like we are developing a software like 30 years ago and people have to adapt to the software afterwards and the process. No, we are strongly working inter interdisciplinary here to get the um, feedback at any point in time in that development process to understand, is this the right direction? How does it help? So in the end, we want that the life of the clinicians is getting easier and the information is valuable, not that we can showcase that a certain AI algorithm is uh, applicable. This was shown in, in science before, right? This is not the idea. It's just here the next step to make them applicable in the hospital use. Well, thank you very much for that, Matthew. You know, I think as these algorithms come out and are being used and implemented, you know, it gets me thinking about reaching out between institutions like yourself and the, you know, significant work that individuals like you and the group you work with are doing with ASHI as a whole, um, you know, because we have varying levels of expertise. And I think by combining them, we can sort of support each other to ultimately make the end product of whether it's a software or if you think of it as enhancing patient outcomes and survival, um, sort of the overriding goal, more achievable, right? Because I think each of us brings different levels of expertise to it. And just hearing you highlight and talk about the perspective on applications and development of AI in, in our field is, has been very intriguing. So thank you very much, sir, for the time. Excellent, definitely. I, I can only um, support this. And it's not that we are limiting to Germany and Canada. It's just that we have started with very specific partners and use case, and we now explore how to bring in. And if you want to support, of course, reach out to me. Uh, we, we will find possibilities to bring in your perspective. At the moment, we want to see if this is the right direction and uh, future um, let's say future professionals in medicine can benefit from that, right? And the earlier we can bring this to real world use, the better most probably for clinicians and patients. And that's, that's the overall goal. It's not about selling a product. We are far away from creating a software product which you can buy uh, out of the shelf. But of course, this might be an overarching arm uh, goal in the end. So at, at the moment, we are trying to demonstrate that this is feasible and this would be crucial for the next steps. Awesome. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. 
Thanks as well. So what'd you think of that, Kelly? He just went in so many awesome directions. I have a million more questions, um, but you know, there's there's never enough time. So we'll have to have him back. It, it's just, it's really exciting. I mean, there's been artificial intelligence around for decades now. Um, but, you know, I think we leave some of these really, really complex issues, you know, as the field advances and medicine, personalized medicine, transplantation, it's so multifactorial. I'm just really excited to see, uh, you know, comp computational analytics grow into this space. I'm just, I'm ready for it to be here. I'm ready to, to learn more. I, I feel like when we're looking at histocompatibility and immunogenetics, we are so focused on our niche portion of the story. I would love to see the data that brings us out of those silos and brings us together and helps us learn a little bit more. Yeah. You know, I mean, I thought he did a really good job of highlighting what AI can do. I mean, there's a obviously ways in which it can be applied. And, you know, I think one of the things of why we're having these episodes is to help draw focus and understanding of AI in medicine and obviously specifically, you know, transplantation for our field. And I think a lot of people forget that how often your daily life is touched by AI. Like, did you go through a stop sign or stoplights? Most of that is controlled by AI systems that have been developed, right? Like, did you watch Netflix and see that whole section that says suggested for you or Disney plus they're all artificial intelligence algorithms, uh, based on what you're clicking, how long you're clicking on, et cetera. Right. And so, you know, I think it's, it's good to see that sort of expertise now being applied, you know, to, you know, people's lives in survival of organs and outcomes of patients. And, you know, I'm hoping that by having this series on application of AI in, in our field, you know, that individuals start to become more familiar with it and understand how we can play a role in it. As you heard Matthew talk about, it's not about replacing you or I, it's about supporting the system in enhancing patients' outcomes and, you know, making us all familiar with how to be a part of that system. It's clearly the future. Do you think HLA folks are ready for it? No. Oh, do tell. I think none of us have been trained that way, right? Myself included, right? Like we have backgrounds that are very diverse, which is our strength, but almost none of our backgrounds include data analytics or programming or big data analysis, right? Um, we've been very, very good at immunology, genetics, clinical interpretation, assay development, validations, right? But having been on the DTRC and a number of other ASHI committees, there's very few opportunities for individuals to be exposed to the design and implementation of AI, right? And so I think what they're talking about and some of the other people we're going to talk with, well, these are opportunities for us as a society to expand our expertise and our participation in, you know, what's coming down the line. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm excited to see this 
expand in availability. It's so experimental right now. Uh, but man, I, I just feel like if you came to me and said, hey, will you run this algorithm alongside, you know, what you're doing right now, um, just to, you know, see how they mesh up, you don't have to change what you're doing, just, you know, run this algorithm next to what you're doing. And we're going to look at prospective long term outcomes. I, I'd be so hard pressed to say no, I, I want to know if I can get better at what I'm doing, if I'm making the right assessments based on the data that I have. But as our president, Annette Jackson, would say, we've all got to be collecting the right data uh, to do that. Uh, and, and more coming on that, I think, in the next few months. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an opportunity for Ashi to once again take the lead and, you know, show our collective strength. Listeners, I hope you are just as fascinated, excited and mind blown as I am. Uh, it's been a great episode and I can't wait to talk to you guys next month. Until next time, guys. Bye. <laughs>